Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. everyone to a special show on the Red Velvet Media Network with the Indie Cafe and my co-host Spencer Drake calling in from the East Coast. We have a really cool show today um, and that was Maggie's Farm as everyone could probably, I'm not going to work on Maggie's Farm anymore, but um, I have Stephen Petrus with me today and we are going to be talking about his book Folk City, a New York and the American Folk Music Revival and uh, it's pretty cool because there's a lot of really great 
photography in this book. Um, I am going to have him tell you a little bit about the background on the book and the reason why it was created and uh, the need for everyone because it was such a big movement, and I'm sure he can explain it more in the photography, and the books is outstanding. Um, so I want to let everyone know the chat room is open, and if you'd like to call in, the number is uh, 347-677-1036. And um, let's see, everything will be available on iTunes afterwards. And I've been told that we are also being simulcast now through another network, so you can uh, pick us up pretty much on every network. And so with that, I am going to bring my co-host in and also my guest, and uh, we will uh, get this show going. And uh, if again, if you'd like to call in, the number is 347-677-1036. And uh, the show will be available again um, to stream live on Red Velvet Media and also on iTunes. With that, let me bring everyone in. Okay, Stephen, I've got you, and I've got Spencer. Yes. Welcome to the show, guys. Hey, how you doing, Hey, it's Holly? great to be here, Holly. Hi, Spencer. <laughs> how you doing, Stephen? Oh, doing great. And we're so happy to have Stephen with us because we have rescheduled Stephen quite a few times. And I'm so sorry, Stephen. So many things happen, like fires and, and know, all kinds of I crazy know. stuff up here. But we're here and we're glad. So that song <laughs> we opened up with, that sets a really great mood for what we're going to talk about. So why don't you go introduce yourself. And tell our listeners a little bit about Folk City, New York, and the American Folk Music Revival. And then Spence and I have some questions, and we'll talk about the photography and all that. So go for it. Yes. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Holly and Spencer. I'm so delighted to be here. It's really wonderful. Thanks for having me on. And greetings from Brooklyn to all your listeners. And, yeah, i the principal author of this book, uh, Folk City, as you said, co-written with Ronald Cohn, a historian, another historian, and I'm a historian currently at LaGuardia Community College in Queens. It's part oh, of the cool. City University of New York system. And I mm-hmm. did Folk City, Holly, when I was a uh, museum curator I at the Museum of the City oh, nice. of New York. Yeah, it was oh, wonderful. Wow. I, got my P- I got my PhD in history in 2010 at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and my background is urban and cultural history. I wrote a dissertation on Greenwich Village in the 50s and 60s, and I was interviewing for a position at the Museum of the City of New York, and uh, the the chief curator said, well, our future exhibition includes uh, something on the folk music revival in the village in the 50s and 60s, -hmm. and I said, aha, I wrote a chapter on the subject, and they were immediately interested and hired me to do this uh, fellowship, this curatorial fellowship. So um, initially it was supposed to be just an exhibition on the folk revival in New York City. The question was, why did the folk revival uh, center in New York City and flourish in the 50s and 60s? And I worked on that, wrote a proposal, began identifying objects, photographs, instruments, artifacts, flyers, ticket stubs, and so much other ephemera. Yeah, Yeah, it was really a dream come true for me. And I proposed to write a book to accompany the exhibition. I got um, an old friend, uh, Ron Cohn, and I ended up writing almost all the book. You know, I wrote a proposal. Uh, Oxford University Press offered us a contract, a terrific press. Oh, nice. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was just everything fell into place very nicely for me. And um, both the book and the exhibition span the period from around the 1930s to the 1960s, again, focusing on the folk revival in the city. Why in New York? That was the big question. And we we answered that question by looking at the importance of the commercial production in New York. The performance venues were here. The record companies were here. Journalists were here, editors, agents, and also political activists, too. So many folk singers were coming from all over the country because they were interested in using music to advance their political causes, whether in civil rights or anti-war in the 1960s, um, so many or labor movements. 
you know, they attached the music to their causes. And New York was a real, I think, really fertile in this area as well. So for all these reasons, New York became the center of the folk music scene in the country by the 50s. And, um, you know, we really probed, especially in the village, you know, uh, surrounded by Washington Square Park. There's the Coffee House District on McDougal Street, Bleecker Street, some 25 venues there offering opportunities for young folk singers to test their metal, to experiment with new music in front of discerning crowds. And maybe there were critics in the audience, journalists in the audience, agents, managers, and it just became a a place of ferment, um, you know, creative interactions. And yeah, and and that, and it just um, really was tremendous. The book, published in 2015 the exhibition ran from 2015 to 2016 and since then uh, I've been talking about it at educational institutions at universities I was just in Tulsa last week at the Woody Guthrie Center oh nice uh, doing a talk yeah it was tremendous Holly Um, they have a Woody Guthrie Center and you and your listeners may know that they purchased uh, Tulsa through the George Kaiser Foundation, purchased the Bob Dylan archive for $20 million, and they're building a Bob wow. Dylan center there. It's going to be, it's going to be really? incredible. It's oh, Spencer, we got to get in, in on that one. I know. That sounds incredible. That sounds really incredible. Oh, wow. Isn't that remarkable? Like, Tulsa is. is really becoming a focal point for, like, the study and appreciation of music. There are festivals there, mm-hmm. um, exhibitions there, conferences. So in this small little district called the Tulsa Arts District, which was once a mm-hmm. manufacturing area, warehouses, and now – there are cultural institutions and performance venues flourishing there. So it's dynamic. And, you know, Folk City took me there and so many other places and now on your show. So this is a real treat for me. Good. Oh, no, we love Great. it. Spencer and I were, are so excited to have you here. Tell our listeners where they can get your book um, real quick. It's uh, Folk City, New York, and the American Folk Music Revival. And let's yes. talk about the book itself and a lot about the photography. And then Spence and I have some questions for you. Absolutely. Well, you know, the book is uh, available on the Oxford University Press website and Amazon. Mm-hmm. And in many major bookstores, too, you'll find it in the music section. Uh, so oh, it's, nice. it's easily accessible uh, to to people. And it did really well. It was reviewed prominently, I think, by 20 different publications, academic that. journals, and newspapers. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, you know, it, it made it's a splash. It's on Amazon. And it's on Amazon, too, right? On that's Amazon? correct. It's on Amazon, too. Yeah. And, you okay. know, it was it was fresh book in the sense, Holly, that, you know, there's been a ton written about Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie and Dylan and many others, but no one really brought it all together and kind of put them in a New York environment, a New York context, mm. you know, and put them in that frame. So in, in that regard, you know, the, the book is kind of is fresh, it's accessible, but we also wanted to win the respect of our academic colleagues, fellow historians, but to make it accessible to a broad public. And I think we hit that sweet spot. Mm-hmm. Oh, Yeah. Spencer, what do you think about now? What is what was your impression when you looked at this book? Because you're in New York, just so I can yeah, explain. I, Spencer's on the East Coast, and I'm on the West Coast, mm-hmm. so I know what mm-hmm. it, I, I've heard a little bit about the Folk City, um, part, um, you know, blast off here in San Francisco. Obviously, peace, love, and music. You know, when mm-hmm. back in the mm-hmm. peace movement days, but New York is intriguing to me and since spencer's there i'd like to hear from spencer what he thinks because he walks these streets all the time yeah i think um i go back holly to the 60s era i used to see uh, some incredible groups there um playing at folk city and also i frequented oh, really? folk city a lot folk oh, city really? a lot and um and then there was cafe wa and mm-hmm. um and of course, eventually Kenny's Castaways evolved uptown and then went downtown into Bleecker Street. But I, Folk City was this. Uh, I remember walking in. Mike Porco owned it, and I was very mm-hmm. friendly with him. 
And then you'd walk in, and the bar was on the left, and you walked into this room where the stage was on the right and the seating was on the left. Um, everything was close quarters, but, but enough space, kind of description here. So it wasn't really close quarters, but there was enough space. And, you, and where you sat, where you were really close to the stage, like... Um, you know, uh, like Kenny's Castaways or, or the other places on the block. But but uh, what interested me is, like, the, the people that played there. I mean, um, mm-hmm. David Crosby or uh, Neil Young, uh, Bob mm-hmm. Dylan played there. Um, mm-hmm. I, my, one mm-hmm. of my first albums was the first Bob Dylan album, and, and uh, mm-hmm. Baby Let Me Follow You Down, um, you know, mm-hmm. uh, classic song on the album. But, you know, um, so I was brought up collecting a lot of the old, uh, in that era, uh, uh, you mentioned some of the names in your book uh, mm-hmm. of the artists. And um, so I was I was in that era. I was in New York. I started going, that's where I started to really get my music mind centered on, in that area. And um, mm-hmm. I, was very big, I was a big Bob Dylan freak at that time, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. He was say, yeah. so influential, and and you have that all down here. I think, I think what's interesting is his life, um, in the early days, which you have. Right. Uh, that's probably right. one of the most interesting periods uh, to write about. Yeah, uh, right. Absolutely, really absolutely, and absolutely. the people around him, the, the the musicians around him, right? That you really have. Yeah, that that, whole thing that was the, really important. Spencer is to. Um, you know, mm-hmm. think about Bob Dylan not as this solitary genius who has this conversation with, like, Zeus and writes Maggie's Farm. <laughs> right. But, yeah. you know, he's part of a community. He comes to New York in January 1961. He's 19 years old. He's from Minnesota. He, he mm-hmm. spent about a year or so at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. He played in coffee houses in the Dinkytown Bohemian District of Minneapolis before he arrived in New York. And... Um, but boy, did he really flourish in that community. And I think it was really important, as you say, like the dense concentration of venues like Cafe Wa right across the street from right. the Gaslight Poetry Cafe right around the corner from Gertie's Folk City um, by the Bitter End in Village Gate. And if you can just imagine like uh, just about 25 of them on a few streets and what right. that what that will create you know, mm-hmm. you know, you see Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan sees Phil Oaks one night, Judy Collins, Eric Anderson, Ooh, uh, so many oh, great I've, people. I've you should have been you, here, Holly. You, you deserve to be here. Oh, <laughs> can, you, can you imagine Collins. this, Holly? And, you know, there's a sense of community. There's a, yeah, there's a yeah. sense of community. Like, we're, there, that's sort of the uh, political aesthetic and part, you know, at Washington Square, Sunday afternoon, mm-hmm. bring your guitar, your fiddle, your banjo down in the park, meet other people. It's casual. Right. It's nonprofessional. But also there's a sense of competition, too. You know, you hear... Dylan, like Dave Van Ronk would, and play a song like like Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, and it just opens new doors and new possibilities about what the songwriting could be, and to draw mm-hmm. from different literary traditions, American cultural traditions, fuse them, synthesize them against the backdrop of what's happening at the country at the time, whether it's the civil rights movement or, you know, the critique of the military-industrial complex during the Cold War, during the Eisenhower and Kennedy era. You know, Phil Oakes was a real critic of American foreign policy. So, you know, all of these um, trends are fusing, converging in the village in the early 60s, and Dylan's part of it. And as you say, Spencer, he's part of this community. Um, He's got people like Dave Van Ronk, Ramblin' Jack Elliott, Mike Porco at Gertie's Folk City. Um, all supporting him, encouraging him. John Hammond at Columbia Records. Right. Of I was going to say that John Hammond Sr. was a big factor in his life, and uh, you wrote about that in the book, which I thought was really great. Um, Very and the other, cool. The other, the other question I want to ask you, uh, you have in this insert on Decca Records. Uh, I'm doing a very big vinyl show. I have some very great uh, Dylan sleeves going to be in it, and I, and, uh, I got some stuff from Decca. You know, Decca mm-hmm. was really great label for the Beatles, uh, early mm-hmm. folk, 
Um, yep. A very famous company. I'm glad you put them in the book because they are really yes. important in vinyl history, yes. uh, in record yes. history. Could you tell us about yes. that? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely essential company, Spencer. Uh, and yep. I really focus on them in particular with regards to the Weavers, who formed right. in the late 1940s yeah, the a quartet right. with Pete Seeger, mm-hmm. Ronnie Gilbert, Lee Hayes, and Fred Hellerman. And this is the first group around 1949, 1950 mm-hmm. to uh, demonstrate the commercial potential for folk music with their hits like Goodnight Irene, an old Lead Belly tune on top mm-hmm. of old Smokey, a uh, traditional folk song that goes back to at least the 19th century. And they recorded with Decca. And Decca was nationally prominent. It wasn't just simply a local niche label with a small, yeah. uh, small following. But, you know, it was a major platform for groups like the Weavers, Burl Ives, uh, and so many others, too. Oh, wow. I think Sinatra oh, recorded cool. for them. So that was like making Oh, yeah, he big, did. That's know. right. Sinatra what, did. Yeah, yeah. The Andrews sisters. You know, they had a really impressive stable of performers. And so to get a DECA contract really demonstrated what folk music could become around 1950-51. And the Weavers took a national tour. They played out in California and Los Angeles Reno, Nevada, Houston, the major nightclubs in New York, and they were dressed in their formal attire. Uh, and DECA what really helped fuel that, push them forward. And But of course, you know, the early 50s too was in the period of the Red Scare. And because Pete Seeger had been a member of the Communist Party in the 1940s, he would become blacklisted. They lost their DECA contract. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, that was, that was wow. a big blow to the Weavers. And they disbanded temporarily, but then they would reunite. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, you really cannot exaggerate the importance of Deco Records. So I'm glad you brought that up, Spencer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, um, I have a question yeah, really yeah. quick, Spence. I yeah. want to ask you, um, while you were doing this book and also during the exhibits and during your symposiums and stuff, do you have mm-hmm. any of the artists involved in any of your symposiums doing any kind of presentation and what was it like and who did you work with uh yeah. when you did this book uh, yeah, like to hear awesome about that question yeah yeah because that was a huge part of it holly it wasn't just doing a book or an exhibition we had a, we had a series of public programs six concerts and two uh oh, panel wow. discussions uh even mm-hmm. before the exhibition holly we had a major fundraiser uh, next door to the Museum of the City of New York. There's a major um, venue with about 500 people seated. And uh, we had, this was in 2013, uh, it was one of Pete Seeger's last shows. You know, he decided on the day of, yeah, to to come. I was in touch with his daughter, Tina, and they were Mm -hmm. taking it on on a daily basis. How is Pete feeling And that morning she called me up and said, Pete will come to the concert tonight. So we had him and Pete, we had Peter Yarrow from Peter, Paul and Mary. Um, We had younger musicians too, like Langhorn Slim perform. Uh, We we had a real uh, tremendous mix. And during the exhibition itself, when it opened in 2015, we had people like David Amram play, John Cohen from the new lost city Ramblers Eric oh, Anderson wow. performed a concert who, by the way, is out in California right now as we speak. Yeah. Um, so we had uh, a, a tremendous lineup. People like Happy Trom performed, Josh White Jr., uh, uh, just a, a great range, a great mix of, uh, of, of concerts. Um, Nora Guthrie did a talk, Woody's Daughter. Uh, and I, I got the chance to, to meet quite a few people. Oscar Brand, the f- famous WNYC radio show host who has since passed away, he played for us mm-hmm. as well. Um, and it was really spirited, you know, to bring them back to the, the museum for concerts in the auditorium. It's generated tremendous enthusiasm, excitement, and uh, you know, and it added another element too, and that was what it was meant to be—like really integrative book, exhibition, concerts, panel discussions—to be very communal and feel. And I think we we achieved mm-hmm. that really well with those uh, with those programs. Um, you know, Noel Paul Stuckey from Peter Paul and Mary 
um, Paul, he played in a solo concert too. He came down from Maine oh, wow. and that was, nice. yeah, it was really a, a special treat to, to have him come down as well. And uh, we were very fortunate. I mean, well, I, I want to amazing. bring up some, uh, Holly, I got to mm-hmm. mention, I, I met Stephen yeah. at Richard, Richard Barone's uh, show yeah. at um, mm-hmm. downtown New York at Joe's pub. And um, it was interesting because we had Richard on the show, Steve, of course, and uh, Holly and I, yeah. and uh, he had that album dedicated to those early days in New York. Mm-hmm. Kind of went along mm-hmm. with what your mindset was. Cornish Village, yeah, the Cornish yeah, Village. Yeah, that album. Oh, that the album had David Amram played mm-hmm. that night. It was a great night. That's and, right. Um, That's right. I just automatically thought about that event because uh, Richard had brought in about those days, the early days in New York. Yeah, and yeah, absolutely. That, and I believe, you know. Richard has since become a really good friend. Richard and I and some some others, including uh, Anthony DeCurtis, who just recently wrote a Lou Reed biography. Oh, nice. I'm in that. I'm, I'm yeah, mentioning that. Not, you know, I'm, oh. I mentioned. We had Anthony on. Uh, Holly and I had Anthony on to uh, a show. Two and, uh, we I'm, had him on. Yeah, and oh, Judith and I are book mentioned in the book. We designed it's a Lurie, terrific you know. biography. Of yeah, it's Lurie. incredible. Yeah, and we had you know, to have so him in, on twice, Stephen, because there was wow. so much in the book. We had to do had part one hit. and part two. I, oh, yeah. What you could probably have him on a third time too, and still have <laughs> oh, dynamic conversations. But anyway, because he really back to that. But you yeah. guys are you and you and and uh, Richard and Anthony yeah. are doing what? Well, we did a series um, right at right when the album was released uh, called Sorrows mm-hmm. and Promises, you know, a tribute oh, nice. to the singer-songwriters of the 60s, um, including Phil Oaks, Anderson, Simon and Garfunkel, Dylan, and so many others, uh, including Lou Reed, too. He, uh, we, we did uh, a series of panel discussions at the, the uh, Greenwich Village branch of the New York Public Library downtown, Jefferson Market Library. Oh, cool. And it was just so much fun because we mixed panel converse discussion with music. Steve Adabo was there as a guitarist as well. And uh, other, other figures were there too. Marshall Crenshaw was there. So we had really uh, lots of fun engaging with the crowd and just talking about what the music meant at that time. You know, music, it just had so much potential and possibilities. People thought it could help change our culture, change our society, make our society better with regards to civil rights and get us thinking Mm -hmm. about different ways of doing foreign policy, critical of the war in Vietnam. And, you know, and just in fostering greater social harmony and I think part of that the album was part of that but it was also like part a, a lot of the songs weren't the most popular songs by these select artists and I think Richard was really cognizant of like kind of adding um, new layers to like the American songbook as he said so it, it was a real like historical like retrospective but it's just it feels very timely too and Richard and I have become close he's playing a concert interestingly if you're in those of you in New York out there, Central Park Summer Stage, later this summer, he's basically doing uh, a concert um, based off of that album. And I'm going to do the slideshow because I've got oh, we're talking about photographs, Holly, uh, you know, on the oh, backdrop wow. of the stage and Central Park <laughs> Summer Stage. So, I, you know, that how, you how cool is that? You know? Yeah, <laughs> That's very that cool. is so cool. You know, I don't know why, but for some reason, it's like that whole era, the 50s and the 60s, and then that whole thing about that whole district. It reminds mm-hmm. me of the movie Midnight in Paris. It's like when you go back and yes. all the writers are in one little area <laughs> playing music, and then you've got the yep. same thing there with you know music revival. You've got everybody hanging out That's with right. each other, asking each other what they think about a song that now is iconic and probably soundtracks mm-hmm. to many people's lives. And then mm-hmm. it was just like a, a thought, you know, and here yeah. it's now like we can live this, but you know, it's, it's like, I miss, I'm, I, I really, I mean, I, I don't know what it is to miss that, but I would have loved to have experienced yes. that and for it to be that way because Things were so much more, I don't know, this sounds so stupid, but things were so much more simple. Even though Mm -hmm. we were in turmoil, 
the world was mm-hmm. in turmoil like it is today. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But still, mm-hmm. they knew how to live, and they loved what they did, and the music really was a soundtrack for so many people's lives. I've heard that Absolutely. from so many people. You know, what do you think, Spencer, about that? I, I totally agree with you, Holly, exactly what you yeah. said. It's a different period. Um, you know, even in music, uh, today you've got 40,000 different groups. I'm doing a, a vinyl show, and I'm, I'm buying vinyl sleeves, and I'm noticing the immense amount of groups, musicians out there. I'm going to tie this in with what we're talking about, but it's like uh, it's, that's a grain of sand on the beach, what I'm doing right now. And I'm figuring in those days, Everything, like Holly says, is simpler, including you could... It's simple. You knew, the, you knew the amount of musicians when you knew the people that were playing. It was not this thing like there's 40,000 musicians that I don't know. You knew every musician that was out there. You're right? It was a smaller, mm-hmm. simpler uh, group. I, I don't know how to explain mm-hmm. it. Today, it's totally different. It's like Chris Stein was on a show. He said he couldn't keep up with it. And it's true. You it, There's... There's too many. There's so much music out there. That, but in those I days, think, like Holly said, yeah. it, life was simpler. And I even think, the amount yeah. of musicians that you knew, you knew the musicians that were playing. They really. all knew each other. That's right. Yeah, they all knew each other. And it seems like they had a yeah. relationship that right. was unspoken. That's exactly. That they knew. Yeah. It was the unspoken yeah. word. They, had, they all had respect for each other. And like you said, yeah. Stephen, earlier, there was still a little bit of a slight edge to a competition. But yes. Yeah. It wasn't like the crazy competition like we have today. It was more like right. no. encouraging competition where it encouraged people to maybe go into other areas and types of music that they maybe normally wouldn't have gone into. And I want to talk a lot about the instruments because you mentioned that was something very interesting. Let's talk about the instruments that were very um, prominent in the 50s mm-hmm. and 60s. Well, yeah, you know, with the it was an acoustic scene, um, and so mm-hmm. of course you had the guitar and uh, the mm-hmm. fiddle and the banjo, and um, were 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 obviously central, but also the mandolin and um, and oh, many nice. others too, like the dulcimer for the Appalachian dulcimer. Right. I'm associating that with like Gene Ritchie, um, who another. Uh, someone from whose family went back a long, long time, Kentucky Appalachia, moved to New York City and sold her dulcimers at places like uh, Izzy Young's shop on McDougal Street called the Folklore Center, and there were other instrument shops. So, you know, it was acoustic music, and I think, Holly, this helped create that intimacy, whether you're playing outdoors in Washington Square Park or a smaller mm-hmm. venue like a subterranean venue like the Gaslight Poetry Cafe on McDougal Street. Uh, you know, the banjo, of course, really popularized by Pete Seeger, who first came out with the book in the late 40s. I think it was something very simple to tell, like how to play the banjo. And it went through so many different mm-hmm. editions and became uh, quite a bestseller. And uh, within the music community, um, Martin guitar was was very important. Gibson guitars were very important and made popular by groups sometimes called pop folk groups today, like Kingston Trio, um, you know, uh, the Limelighters, the Brothers Four, the Chad Mitchell Trio, but um, other musicians too, like Woody Guthrie and later on, of course, Dylan. And But it was very much an acoustic scene, and that's why I think, you know, when Dylan, quote, goes electric with Maggie's Farm at the 1965 Newport Folk Festival in Rhode Island, it caused a stir. It wasn't just because he was using an electric guitar. There were other factors involved too, but I think that was part of it. You know, Peter Yarrow says, you know, it was, you know, this, it was an acoustic scene. And so electrification represented kind of a departure from and in part from our communal aesthetic. It, you, you sort of lose that in, in his view, at least. Um, but, you know, we showcased a lot of these instruments at the exhibition, like the lead belly guitar. Um, we had a Judy Collins guitar on display, uh, a Love Bob Gibson that. guitar, yeah. you know, and it, it was important wow. to have like these 3D objects too, not just, you know, album covers, original lyrics, 
photographs, which are all great, but to have like these these wow objects in cases like Eric Anderson's daughter, Sari, um, who lives out in Hawaii, loaned us Eric's guitar. He wrote Thirsty Boots on this guitar in 1964, would become oh, one wow. of his prominent songs. And and that was just mm-hmm. really neat to have all these, these instruments on display to kind of give people a sense of what the times were like and to have our artists yeah. in the public programs play them. So really very, very neat. And um, so, yeah, you know, the guitars in particular were, were central, along with banjos and other oh, instruments. Oh, I bet. Now, yeah, what about yeah. the photography? Where did you source that out at? Where did you get well, the pictures you know, and we, stuff? we had... Yeah. That that was so much fun, Holly, for me, is to I I locate these photographs from collectors and from estates all over the country. And the object list in general included about 1,000 objects, but the exhibition designer said, guess what? You've got 1,700 square feet in this gallery. You have to narrow it down from 1,000 objects to 250. So... Mm-hmm. I had to, as a curator, oh, no. make difficult decisions. <laughs> what goes yeah. in? What do I take out? And I know I'm going to get criticism. How dare you leave out so-and-so? <laughs> right. But, you know, that's part of the process of being a curator. And, and I know, you know, we all deal with this selection pro- process in our own respective fields, so it's not easy. But with the photographs, the Dave Gar estate was especially important to us. Dave Gar was often considered like the um, – eminent photographer, the preeminent photographer of American folk music in the 60s, in the village, at the Newport Folk Festival, published a book called Face of Folk Music in 1968, really captures the exploding folk music scene. So I worked with his estate, and that was a little difficult. Frankly, you know, they were charging a lot of money for their individual photographs, and I said, look, we have a limited budget. You know, there's only so much that we can spend. And we ended up uh, negotiating a deal basically where I would feature Gar's photographs prominently on a loop on a video monitor um, and talk about Dave's critical importance to the folk music scene. And we, you know, we negotiated a good deal. So we got a reduction there. And, and so everything was the process of negotiation and selection. But the Dave Gar photographs were both central to the book and to the exhibition, and it really elevated both because his work was just brilliant, you know, and we, we ended up using I, I gotta, I his Steve, I, I Steve, i got to tell you about, I, I was very good friends, like really one of the best of friends of David Garr, I want you to know. And oh. I, I got introduced to him uh, working at ESP Disc, which had a lot of the famous first jazz albums and, of course, the Fugs during that era of the 60s. Yes. And, yeah, and, and the back cover, the back cover of uh, the early Fugs album had a photograph by David Garr, and so I looked huh? at it, not knowing David at that time, and I said, yeah. "This is an incredible uh, shot of the group," you know. Right. And then all of a sudden, we were talking together. We actually judged a Grammy CD packaging thing together one year. We talked all the time. Uh, a phenomenal photographer, and I did an album cover with him, Stephen. I did an album cover oh. with him. And i got to tell you a great story. i got to tell you a yes. great story. So yes. I always I shot so many covers, but I never used slides because slides were like, to blow up, were like, usually mm-hmm. you don't do that. You use the, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a, a transparency. Uh, you, you went up a certain way. So I talked to David. He's doing this album cover with this artist, Carolyn Moss on Mercury, and I uh, hired him, and I said, and he said, David Gar says to me, he says, look, I only shoot in slides, but you've got to see what I do. And he left me with that, and I said, oh, my God. So I couldn't sleep at night and everything. He <laughs> sends me these images blown up of his slides, and they were incredible. I mean, he yes. was able to uh, crisp, crisp shoot on slide, and you were able mm-hmm. to blow it up to, to a very big size on an album cover. And I learned from that, you know, I really learned from that, that there are exceptions. And David Garr was phenomenal, you know, and yes. he shot yes. incredible, you know. Well, I'm so happy to hear that, Spencer, that you collaborated with him and worked with him and you brought your yeah. expertise together. And, yes, and I uh, just really was, was great to collaborate with him, with his estate, um, 
you know, very much enriched the show. And but there were others too, like Fred McDara's estate too. Fred oh, McDara yeah. is better known yeah, as the staff photographer for the Village Voice. He was also an mm-hmm. author, took a lot of pictures of the beats and abstract expressionists. But also there are some uh like iconic Dylan shots that he got in the early sixties in Sheridan Square in the village. We we got some material from the McDara estate. Erwin Gouin um, was a photographer at Gertie's Folk City. Not a household name, but I tracked his family down. Uh, they live wow. in Israel, and we we got uh, some outstanding oh. shots in 1961, about a year after Gertie's Folk City was opened by Mike Porco in the village. And mm-hmm. I wanted to get a, a real um, array of photographs, and one thing in particular, um, and I'm, I'm so happy we're talking about this, is like I wanted the photographs to New York. I wanted them to reflect New York so you can get a sense of the environment of Washington Square Park, of these intimate venues, not just the singer-songwriter on stage, but the crowd, too, engaged. And those pictures, to me, really, I think, communicate the, the culture, the, the temperament, the spirit of the period, and the, the New York environment, Holly, that you were talking about, where this critical mass mm-hmm. of folk singers are coming together and exchanging ideas, uh, you know, experimenting with new material in front of these audiences, allowed to make mistakes. Because, you know, the, the rent was cheap, it was affordable, so you didn't have to have top acts, but you could bring in and hoot and any night, kind of like an open mic thing, young, ambitious people, and who often didn't go to college, who often dropped out, like Dylan. And I make the point in the book that these venues, these cafes became their Harvard and Yale and Princeton, where they got their own education. And so you had, and you had people like Gar chronicle this, Fred McDara, Michael Oakes, brother of Phil, Erwin Gouin, so many others, Douglas Gilbert, and uh, to, to get that array of photographs that really spoke New York, that had New York almost as like a character in the photographs was really vital to me. So that's really how I made my selection process, starting with several thousand photographs, ending with a couple hundred. Wow. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. You know, what I wanted to ask you, Stephen, besides the symposiums you're doing and everything, what are you work, currently working on? Do you have another follow-up book or another yes, project I you're do, working on? I do, Holly. Yes, yes. My Let's my next book, it. and this is, yeah, it's based on my doctoral dissertation, which was seven chapters. Folk City was one chapter from that that I then expanded to six, but I have six more chapters, a broader political and cultural history of Greenwich Village in the 50s and 60s, So this is going to look at, remember, there were other artistic movements flourishing in the neighborhood, experimental movements in film, in theater. So we had off-Broadway and then even edgier off-off-Broadway. You had the independent film movement. I think probably Andy Warhol's films became iconic, but there were so many others at that time in the early 60s kind of shepherded by people like Jonas Mikas, uh, who would become the founder of Anthology Film Archives in New York City. And so I'm looking at these artistic movements and also political movements flourishing in the neighborhood. Um, There's a real tremendous surge of activism, challenging conventional wisdom in urban planning, in politics, and in the arts. And in Greenwich Village, you could do that. Uh, because, you know, you had important outlets. So I'm writing about that, and I'm writing about the community organizations in the neighborhood that gave an outlet to these activists, to these artists, places like Judson Memorial Church on Washington Square South, Uh, organizations like the Village Voice, which emerged in 1955. They're doing reviews of films and theater that, like the mainstream media, the New York Times, were simply ignoring. And they said, look, we need to enrich the cultural conversation in our alternative weekly newspaper. And the criticism became um, essential to like kind of sort of develop the developing trends. And I'm looking at the importance of these community organizations and providing these outlets and supporting these new movements. So I'm about six chapters into it. I anticipate about eight chapters 
So this is my current big project that I'm working on, my second book. I've also done a lot of other writing. I write for Los Angeles Review of Books, review essays. I I'm, I'm did a chapter on activism uh, and folk music in the village and at Newport, a short little piece on Eric Anderson, um, a, like kind of a meditative piece. So I've got a lot of things up my sleeves, but uh, the book is will be the major thing coming out. And uh, I'm, I'm really happy and feel fortunate to be able to kind of grapple with the village as a neighborhood and go just beyond the maybe sometimes romantic depictions of it as a bohemian enclave, but ask the questions, what were the organizations that really made the place tick? What really gave it its DNA? And why there? Why then? What were these artists and mm -hmm. these reformers gravitating to? These are a lot of the, the things, the ideas that I'm playing around with in, in this next book. Oh, nice. You oh, know what? You cool. know what's interesting. I've got to bring this up, Steve. When I went to first went to college uh, mm -hmm. in the '60s, uh, mid '60s, I guess. Um, Bob Dylan was really big, right? And and he's yes. playing around now. This is nobody talks about this, but I got to bring this up because it's about fashion. In those mm -hmm. days, you went out and bought because you Bob Dylan was into the rebel, you know that whole thing and activism, mm -hmm. right? You know that, mm -hmm. and um, mm -hmm. you bought like jeans and you bought mm -hmm. a work shirt, right? Mm -hmm. This was a fashion mm -hmm. you wore in school, right? Right. You wore yep. boots. You wore you you wanted to look like Bob Dylan. You know what I mean? You wanted right. to, and right. people don't talk <laughs> about they talk about fashion influences, but Bob Dylan. Actually, mm -hmm. because they people try to relate the feeling in the way they wore their clothes. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And, and they would buy like work shirts because he was big on wearing yes. work shirts, right? So if you're yes. into Bob yes. Dylan, you bought a work shirt. You bought jeans. You That's were right. wearing them. Isn't that interesting? Absolutely. Yeah, it, it's very interesting that that scene and how he was trying to portray himself because. You know, as you know, Spencer, he's, his identity was a bit fluid when he first arrived, and he would fabricate stories with the press on, like, Oscar Brandt's WNYC radio show, claiming to be, like, um, you know, an orphan from Wyoming or South yeah. Dakota or that he what? was in the carnival. Yeah, yeah, he was... <laughs> Yeah, you got to go back and listen to some of the, like the Oscar Brand interview from like 1961 or 62. Wow. He said, "Yeah, I was really? I, I ran away from home 12 times. I oh, was wow, in the carnival." Really? And so a lot of that was him creating an identity for himself, sort of certain credentials that he wasn't just a middle-class kid from Minnesota, but he had he was kind of rootless and edgy. And um, I think that would make him maybe authentic. And at first, he's widely known for sort of emulating Woody Guthrie, his idol, when he first arrived. Um, of course, he drew from so many influences, but Woody was key. Uh, and then, yeah, and, and part of it, as you say, was the fashion, like the, the work shirt, the jeans, you know, to give him a certain kind of aura. But that's going to actually even change, as you know, in like 1964, 65, when he's at Newport, and Newport in 65, he's wearing his leather jacket, you know. And the right. previous year, he's got like a, a black turtleneck and a suede jacket and like beetle boots, I think they call them, with these tip points, you know, kind of this modish look emerging in the UK and London around, among cool British rock stars circa 64, 65, and he's wearing his shades, too. So, you know, his own fashion evolution, it's a great subject. And to see how it changes over time as he's kind of taking on new identities. And yeah. so many others are famous for it, too. Here in Brooklyn, we have the David Bowie Is exhibition. Right. Uh, I'm not sure if you had the chance to see it, Spencer, but, um, I'm it, you know, it really it in, captures. Um, yeah, I'm going to see it later uh, in June. I'm going to go there in June, yeah. Wonderful. I'd love to hear your great. opinion about it's it because, it's, you know, it's in part on, uh, apropos to your point, he, you know, there, you can see Bowie's evolution through fashion. He gets mm -hmm. new identities and, and similar case with, with Dylan too. The fashion so was I think, huge, huh? I yeah. mean, really seriously, the fashion really, and what's really cool, I, d I didn't mean to interrupt you, but what's really cool about the fashion then mm -hmm. was it's come back now and it's called boho type fashion, uh -huh. boho movement. And I mean, uh -huh. you know, I mean, I've got like, 
I, I love that whole look, you know, with the flowy, lacy, and then the hats and the wide yeah. jeans and the the vests and the and the shirts and just how feminine some of it can be. But you can mix and match so much of it. It's so much yes. of a movement coming back now, you know. It's interesting, in yeah, like the movement. retrospective and the how Paisley we print, of, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. And oh, and go yeah. back to previous eras and draw inspiration. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as the 60s unfolded, as you both well know, of course, like with the budding counterculture out in the West Coast in San Francisco, and actually the village scene would, uh, I don't think, kind of re- sort of reaches this peak by around 63, 64. And then we have the British invasion and rock and roll and the Beatles and Stones and the Who and pop or folk rock, you know, with the birds based out in California Mm -hmm. and the love and spoonful, the mamas and the papas and the whole scene out in San Francisco, of course, fashion so critical to the kind of the emerging San Francisco scene with the Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane and Big Brother, you know, um, in the, in the Bay area, which just so must've been so fascinating to be there. Talk about a concentration of interesting artists, with, you know, against the backdrop of the flourishing counterculture and the role that fashion played in that as well. Yeah, oh, totally. Big time. Yeah, you Mm -hmm. know, my whole thing is with this whole movement that we're seeing, I think a lot of people are going back to that. Um, Mm -hmm. We want to make it as simple and as real. Like, there are a lot of open mic nights now in a lot of different places. So that goes back to like the open forum and everything that you that they had before, sure. and now it's like just such a great thing for everyone, you know, to be able yeah, to I, I come out and, yeah. and and jam with this one and jam with that one. It's like how many I don't I can't tell you how many concerts I've gone to and I've been watching them and and I've been there. And then somebody's in the audience, and then they just come up on stage, and they may just jam and go out and play a song with them. It's it's so cool, you know. Well, that's that's the beauty of it is bringing people together. It's not pretentious, but people jamming together mm-hmm. and people welcoming each other and supporting each other, professionals, semi-professionals, amateurs, just a whole range of people with different backgrounds and talents and kind of like a neo-folk scene in Brooklyn. We have the Brooklyn Folk Festival, young people. And I think you're, you're right, Holly, they're kind of maybe like hungering for that um, community spirit, mm-hmm. for that authenticity in, a, in our own era, which is just so lacking in, in, in so many ways. But you, you search for that community when you feel alienated. Where can I come together with mm-hmm. like-minded folks and be creative and, and bond? Well, folk music does provide that, and it always has. And, and you know, you, you might see it in a venue here, a venue there, an open mic there, or a festival there, college campuses. So I, I see a resurgence of it as well. Mm. Oh, big time. I yeah, do agree with you. Much so. I agree with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, you know what's really important also right now is for the people that want to hold on to this, there is a way. So today, if you missed the beginning of the show, the show will be available again afterwards on demand on Red Velvet Media and then also on um, iTunes. And this is a special edition of the Indie Cafe on the Red Velvet Media Network. And um, again, it's myself and Spencer Drake and Stephen Petrus. And mm-hmm. uh, it's uh, Folk City, New York, and the American Folk Music Revival and uh, I wanted to ask Spencer if he had anything more he wanted to talk about because we're going to end our show and uh, no, let Stephen get off. Yeah, you know, I was just I was just going to say that uh, it's very interesting. Uh, I'm glad you did this book because uh, it, it's an era that I I went through myself when I was younger, and he really got it down all the information, all the incredible information. And uh, mm-hmm. I want to thank you for mm-hmm. that. You did a great job on the book. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that, especially coming from you, Spencer, somebody who, you know, grew up in the in the 60s and and the scene is familiar to you. So to hear this is uh, it's really wonderful. I really appreciate that. And to you, too, Holly, for having me on this 
great show. Oh, no. I, you know, I'm a long-time we were fan. So excited. We love it. We love we're it. So ex- <laughs> we were so excited to have you. And, you know, we're going to end our show today with a song called On Top of Old Smokey. So we're going to be playing that yes. song. Tell us a little <laughs> bit about that song before we end yeah, our well, show. Yeah, well, the song, it's a, it's a traditional song, probably goes back to the 19th century. I think it was I early December. Yeah, of course. But and it became a, a pop hit with with uh, with the Weavers in the 1950s with uh, with Burl Ives. And this particular rendition is by Dave Van Rock, and he was a central figure in the Greenwich the Greenwich Village folk scene, affectionately called the Mayor of McDougal Street. He was a native New Yorker, often typed as a blues singer, a jazz singer. Um, but he, he really had a, a range of interests in uh, Anglo-American folk music, including On Top of Old Smokey. I think he does a really gorgeous version of the song here in, in, the, in, in this particular uh, rendition. But, yeah, the song was probably like discovered in the 1910s by a folklorist on a, on a, doing field work in the Appalachian Mountains, um, Cecil mm-hmm. Sharp. And then it was passed along, like so many traditional folk songs, we don't know the original author of the song, but it was sort of belonged to the community, lyrics changed, melody changed, arrangements changed, but Pete Seeger recorded it, then the Weavers and Burl Ives made big hits of the song, and here we have Dave Van Ronk's version of it, and I think it's a great way to end the show. End the show. Oh, that's yeah. great. Great. So listen, for everyone, it's Friday. Please don't drink and drive. We know tomorrow's Cinco de Mayo. Um, if you're going to celebrate, which, uh, you know, we all do in some way with food or whatever, you know, do it in moderation. Um, you know, be safe. Don't overdo it. And uh, have fun. And, uh, yeah, it's a really cool weekend coming up. And we definitely want to have you back, Stephen. Um Oh, I'd love you know, to when you, Yeah, we would love that because you're great. Um, you oh, know how oh, to likewise. talk to our audience. <laughs> so with that, we're going to end our show with the song. And with that, have a great weekend. Bye, Spencer. Yes. Bye. Take care, Bye, everybody. Thank everybody. You. Here we go. Rock and roll. Bye. Yep. Bye-bye. Here we go.
not be forsworn And he surely is mistaken if he thinks I will mourn Oh, Johnny is a young man, but still younger am I And often has he told me that he'd win me or die Untoppable, smoky, all covered with snow I lost my true lover for cotton so slow A cotton is a pleasure, a parting is a grief And a false-hearted lover is worse than a thief Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.